rebels that the Greeks of the day had a special word for what they would call someone who was living a life of wickedness. The word was Corinthasian, and it meant to live like a Corinthian. But praise be to God that he doesn't shy away from the rebels of this world. The truth is, the church of Corinth was wrestling with much of the same things we wrestle with today. Church divisions, sexual immorality, convictional disagreements, what a gathering of believers should and shouldn't consist of, faith in the resurrection, and much more. Again, the Corinthians were rebels, and so were all of us at one time, dead in our sins and trespasses, and in desperate need of the good news of Jesus Christ. They needed the transforming power of the gospel to radically change them, and so do we. At the end of the day, we are all rebels transformed. Good morning, CRC. Good morning. It is an honor. It's a privilege. It, it is awesome uh, to worship with you all this morning. In, in undergrad, I, I had my undergrad schooling at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, um, Illinois, but it was actually, uh, I, was, I was doing it from Bourbonnais. It was all online. But there was an acronym for preaching that was called HBLT. I may have brought this up in a sermon a year or so ago, but um, it, it stands for hook, book, look, took. And the hook portion is the beginning portion of a sermon as they're teaching young ministers, future ministers, how to communicate the word of God effectively. Uh, the hook portion is meant at the beginning of a sermon to bring you in. So oftentimes you'll hear of a story or we'll share statistics or something that'll just help bring you into the text, bring you in to the message. And so here's your hook this morning to wake you up and to bring you into this message. First Corinthians 5, verse 1, and it's on page 926 of your blue hardback Bibles. Here's the hook. It is actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you. You will wake yet? And a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now you're leaning in. Now, now you're ready to hear what in the world is happening, what in the Jerry Springer is going on in Corinth. <laughs> what in the world is happening? It's a mess. It's a mess. And so this individual in the church that Paul is referring to is having relations with his father's wife. Now, this could be interpreted stepmom or mom. Most scholars seem to interpret it stepmom. Still wild, just because of the use of Paul's language here, he'd probably say with his own mother, but instead he says with his father's wife. It's still a mess, equally so. So much so that Paul says, this sort of junk, this sort of behavior, this sort of lifestyle, this isn't even tolerated. There's that word, tolerance, tolerated. Tolerated amongst the pagans, the non-Christ the non followers. He said, they don't even tolerate this type of junk. But y'all are in the church? What is happening? And instead of mourning, in taking action, the Corinthian church just seems to 
tolerate it, to allow it, to to look past it, to sweep it under the rug. And and let's look at verse two. Paul says, and you're proud. That's not to say that they're like waving banners or saying, yeah, you sleep with his uh, uh, father's wife. No, no, it's this idea. It's this this sin of arrogance and pride that, that says instead of doing the right thing, the gospel thing, what Christ would call us to do and engage in, you're doing nothing of that. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Why aren't you dealing with it, essentially? There might have been a few that thought, hey, man, to each his own. You ever heard that one? Judge not, lest you be judged. Scripture out of context. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? There may have also been some that said, hey, Christ died to free us from the law. So, I mean, we can live this way. This is still a part of the Jesus way, right? Paul seems to address both of these mistaken groups in his explanation. Again, this is a good time to pause and to remember we are reading, when we're reading 1 Corinthians and letters throughout the New Testament in particular, we are reading someone else's mail, okay? This did not happen in a vacuum. There's culture at play, there's context, there's history, there's there's Corinth. There's Corinthian, right? This is, this is happening in a city. It's a port city, a very prosperous, progressive city. It's doing well. It's on the up and coming. It's one of the most up and coming cities in the Roman Empire. And this is happening, and Paul is saying, yo, we got to address this. We gotta talk about this. What are y'all doing? What is happening? Quick note here, Corinth was known during this time, one scholar suggests, to have around 1,000 temple prostitutes in the city alone. Around 1,000 temple prostitutes. Enjoying that type of lifestyle, the debauched type of lifestyle in the name of the gods that they were serving. But Paul here is sharing a very important word to the Corinthian church then, and I pray that we don't miss it this morning in 2024 in Western Michigan. And here's the word that I believe God would want us to receive as a body. Here's the word. It is better to mourn sin than it is to sweep it under the rug. It is better to mourn sin than it is to sweep it under the rug or turn a blind eye to it. That, that, that word there, that phrase there that is, that is used, the term gone into mourning in verse two is literally the type of mourning that you would see from a funeral. That's the type of depth that Paul is saying, why aren't you 
living in that type of mourning due to the sin that is in your body, due to the sin that people who claim Christ within your church are living in, not simply struggling with, we're talking living in, applauding, saying this is okay, when it's not. Essentially, it is as if Paul is saying, hello, sin is destroying people in your church and you are sweeping it under the rug. Let me ask a couple of questions. Is there sin in your life that you, rather than mourning, are sweeping it under the rug? Just open, blatant sin. There's sin in your life like that. You've just accepted. You've turned a blind eye towards, perhaps it's out in the open, perhaps it's behind closed doors. Let me ask probably a more difficult question. Is there sin in someone's life who is near to you? And they're a believer. I'm not talking non-believers. I'm not talking those outside of the church. I'm talking those in the church. Is there sin that is open and blatant with someone who is near to you in relationship of some kind and some sort that instead of mourning, you are allowing it to just be swept under the rug? Because it's much harder to have hard conversations with the family of faith than it is to pretend like, I don't see anything. Ooh, well, pretend like I don't see that. So Paul is saying in verses four and five, after saying, put this person outside of the fellowship, by the way, there's some Exodus language here that we'll talk a little bit about, within the home covered by the blood of the lamb, the people of God were safe. The firstborn males were safe outside of the home during that 10th plague. The people's firstborn sons were not safe. They didn't have the lamb, the blood of the lamb covered on their doorposts. And so you're gonna see some of this language in 1 Corinthians 5. Verse four here. So when you are assembled, when you're gathering, and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. Hand this man, this is very like, this is severe language, but we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit because it, don't take it for face value. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I share that Exodus imagery because something similar is true of the church. Inside the house, the body of Christ, under the blood of the covenant, with Jesus and his church, and with a lifestyle active in repentance, we have safety and blessing. Worthy is your name, Jesus. 
But outside of the house, the body of Christ, and outside of Jesus' atoning blood for his people, we are exposed and dead in our sin. Now, it's important to see the further context here in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 18 as well. And, and some of your theological minds have already went to Matthew 18. I know some of you. And so, in Matthew 18, as it pertains to when a brother or sister in Christ openly sins and is unwilling to repent in relationship with another brother or sister in Christ, I think what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 5 connects to this. And so I want us to look over at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. These are Jesus' teachings for the church for the people of God. He says this in verse 15, Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, someone within the household of faith, we're not talking blood necessarily like that, brother or sister, but blood of Jesus, brother or sister, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is open sin, this is open rebellion, Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. Like, don't, don't even bring it to the prayer group yet, Mr. and Mrs. Super Spiritual. Go to them first. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. Praise God. But in the end, it cranks up intensity a little bit if that's not the outcome. But if they will not listen, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then what happens if they still refuse to repent? We're cranking it, cranking up the intensity a little bit here. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. We'll explain that a little bit because don't thank Rachel, our amazing host this morning, in announcements, you know, like, um, Joe Bob is sleeping with his neighbor. Um, Let's pray for our offering. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Those are Jesus' teachings. By the way, the most compassionate man to ever live and exist, and he will forever be. That's, that's his word. Those are his words. Here's a very important distinction. It's not that we encourage that person to not attend church necessarily, and I know I might be a little outside of this one, but I think there's a distinction here when we pair 1 Corinthians 5 as well as Matthew 18. And I'm not saying that there isn't some instances where it is, no, you have literally sinned against someone within the church and you're unwilling to repent. They're sitting five rows up and we need to replace you and we need to put you into church discipline. Like that is a real thing that should happen. But I think in some cases, it's not even that you're saying you can't worship here. But it could be that you're saying, we're not allowing you to be a member here. One, we're going to take that level down. Um, you're not going to be a member, and you know when we have communion once every other month, which I'm going to be having a conversation with the elders, thinking we need to go back to every month. That's 
I'm going to fight for that, just so you know you're reading my mail or my mind right now. When we have communion, I say in some way, fashion, or form, and it's packaged differently every time. This is, this is for believers. This is for repentant believers, those who have given their life to Christ and who have repented of their sins. So if you're refusing that, if you're refusing to do that and you've been engaged lovingly in a couple of different ways, we would ask that you would not take communion today if we were having communion. So this is the level that we're talking about here. Again, is there potentially times where you say, actually, no, like you're out of the fellowship. This is my conviction. Yeah, there are times like, hey, we're gonna try to, we hope you continue connecting to a church under church governance, and we're going to connect you hopefully to another local church in the area, but we're going to share the process that we've went through with you under church discipline, with elders, with leaders, with your small group, hopefully you're in a small group, and, and we're gonna share that with them so they know what, what's happening here. I actually know of a church in this area that's going through that process now with an individual. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Reads like this. Paul says, but now I'm writing to you. We'll go back to that context a little later in the sermon. So you're like, what do you mean? But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate fellowship with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What is that? This is wild. What is he talking about, right? Eat here means more of a meal of fellowship. It does not mean necessarily that you're eating somewhere at a particular restaurant or what y'all love to do out here in Western Michigan, I'm finding out, is y'all treat your graduates with these big parties. Like I'm getting nervous for what that could cost our family in years to come these big elaborate graduate parties. So it's not to say if I'm eating at a big elaborate graduate party and I'm, I'm eating sloppy Joe, that seems to be a popular thing on the menu at your graduate parties, which I'm down for, and I'm eating a sloppy Joe and Joe Bob comes rolling in and I know he's under church discipline. I don't go, forget this, I'm out of here. No, that's not the type of eating we're talking about here. Okay, we are talking about a deep level of intimacy, fellowship, community with this person so that by you engaging with them and in the first century, eating in the, in, the, in the right of this type of meal of fellowship back then, eating together in your home was one of the purest signs of fellowship and family. Paul is going to avoid doing things, he's saying, that imply with this individual that you're okay with the way in which they're living. Do not do, not do that. And now actually, at the, in this particular instance, like graduation parties, sloppy joes, and all the good stuff, it might be a good opportunity for you to rub shoulders with Joe Bob and have a conversation. Pull him to the side, talk in love, in love. Maybe that's not the time, maybe, maybe God opens up a door. Also, some scholars even think here the eating that Paul is referring to is communion. Some, some say that 
Perhaps that, that is what he's referring to, which, which would make sense as well. He says, don't do that because you don't want to imply that God is okay with that type of a lifestyle, right? Later on, he'll say, and people actually are eating condemnation to themselves because of the way in which they're open, openly rebelling and claiming Christ and taking communion. That's another hard sermon that'll come down the road, I'm sure. So let's slow down a little bit. I wanna be clear. When we are talking about this kind of public action, we are talking about someone who is defiantly and persistently living against the way of Christ. And it's, I mean, it's obvious. Obviously, the case study here from 1 Corinthians or from the city of Corinth is someone sleeping with their stepmom. Okay? So Paul is not saying like any old thing here, like we need someone, like we need a Matthew 18 volunteer just ready to pounce. And they're looking, and we got cameras in every angle of the church, and we just have a, we have a safety team and then a Matthew 18 team just ready to see we saw the way in which you looked at that person when they came in. You know, we think you're struggling with anger. We're gonna exercise church discipline. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul isn't saying, well, if you sense someone struggling with their screen time, or if you sense someone seems to be a little bit on edge this week, then perhaps they're falling into anger, and I bet they're just go off and go off and go off. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what is happening here in 1 Corinthians 5. This is open, blatant rebellion, and it's very clear. Now, do we wanna speak into other believers' lives? Iron sharpens iron, even, even, some, even some hard things that might not seem as big as this? Absolutely, but this is about someone who is overtly defying Jesus' authority and lordship in their lives. Let's be clear. Let's keep it within the context. And again, I wanna stress this, to interpret Matthew 18 does not mean we literally bring it to the whole church. I think that's a, a bad interpretation of that. But rather, perhaps we invite some elders in. Especially if we have elders who are somehow connected with this individual who is openly rebelling against the way of Jesus and unwilling to repent because we went face to face, then we brought a couple witnesses. By the way, those couple witnesses would probably be people in their small group, hoping that they're in a small group, obviously. And then it goes up to the level of the elders where we have to have some hard conversations then with some church leaders and this individual. I want us to consider now, for the remainder of our time, why having hard conversations like this with unrepentant Christ followers, and like that's kind of, that's, that's kind of an oxymoron as well, unrepentant Christ followers, but Christ followers, people who claim Christ but are unwilling to repent of certain sins that are open and blatant, why this is actually the loving thing to do. And I think Paul maps it out here in this case study in 1 Corinthians 5, inspired by the Holy Spirit. First, the heart of all of this, do not get it twisted, is not the person's judgment, but rather the individual's restoration. That's the heart of this. That's the heart. 
5, 5, 1 Corinthians. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Again, we'll talk a little bit about the flesh there. It's not actually the physical body, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's not saying that this man should be killed in order to save his soul. That's not what he's saying. The word flesh here isn't talking about the physical body. It's talking about a person's stubborn orientation, this settled, resolved opposition to correction, change, and repentance. That's the flesh we're talking about. At one time, by the way, all of us have lived according to the flesh. We've all lived there one time or another. But now, hopefully, prayerfully, we are living according to the Spirit, using Pauline language, Romans. Some might say, well, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care. If you have people in your life telling you that something isn't a good idea and you don't want to take it to heart, you still just want to do what you want to do, you're just inches away from this. You're, you're in open rebellion and that's scary to think about, the, the potential result of that. This is why the language here is so harsh. It's meant to be harsh, not because it's not loving, because it's really serious. Like This is serious stuff. It means doing whatever we can to wake up this individual from their spiritual slumber. Doing whatever we can because we love them so much and it's okay because it might cost us our reputation with them. They might not invite us to the next graduation party. That's okay. We love them so much. We're not trying to, again, openly put them on blast. Man, we're having one-on-one -on -one conversations here, man. Can we go grab some coffee? Can we have a hard conversation? What is up? What is going on? We are to do everything in our power to break the spell that sin and stubbornness has over this person, the slumbering. When something gets to the point of discipline, we're not saying we don't think what you're doing is such a great idea. We're saying if this doesn't change, we actually fear for your soul. It's a real thing. This is a heavy thing. And in all of this, we see the goal of discipline is it's not judgment, it's not condemnation, it's not we hate you, we don't like you, we don't want you here, it's none of that. The goal of discipline should be restoration. A turning from one's sin, turning back to faith in Christ, turning back into the fellowship of the gathering of the believers and prayerfully the joy of their salvation being restored unto them. That's the hope, that's the heart. Second reason why having hard conversations with openly unrepentant members is actually loving to them and everyone involved, I would defend, is we do it for the sake of other believers. Verses six and seven says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Again, this is Exodus language. As you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Leaven is not a very common term today. We would know it better as yeast, okay? Yeast, and you may not know this, but my gluten-free friends, friends probably do. Little Heather Meckes, I bet, knows this. But yeast, sorry for putting that out there, Heather. Uh, if you're like, I don't want to talk about my gluten-free stuff, I, I apologize. Put me under church discipline. You're laughing. I feel better about this. But yeast... <laughs> Yeast is a type of fungus that makes bread rise. It grows and it multiplies quickly. You put it in a batch, a little bit of it goes a long way and it actually fills the whole batch with yeast. Allows the bread to rise. And the Bible uses that as a picture of sin. Just a little yeast quickly spreads through the whole lump of dough. A little sin in the gathering quickly infects the whole community. And so, at the Passover, God had them take the yeast out and put it outside the house and eat only unleavened bread, a symbol that they were leaving the sin of Egypt behind and they were moving forward to the freedom that God was offering so in a similar sense, Paul is saying open and rebellious sin will soon affect the whole church if you just sweep it under the rug. Pretend like it's not that big of a deal. Leave the man and his stepmom alone. Jeez, guys. So for the sake of the church, you have to get it outside the house. So when we hear these hard conversations, or when we have them, we do it for also the sake of the church, for the sake of other believers, unto the glory of God, of course, first and foremost. It wasn't long ago I had to have a hard conversation with people seeking membership. It was a couple, and you'll never know who this person is or these people are, but I had to have a hard conversation in my office about a year plus ago, or let's pretend like I don't even remember the time, and uh, it was hard, and it's not fun. It was loving, and it was gentle, it's, and it didn't turn out great. It wasn't the outcome that I had hoped and prayed for. It was, hey, we'd love to have you a part of this church. We'd love to have you guys become members, but we believe as it comes and pertains to living together, we believe that happens after marriage, not before. Sex is a gift for marriage, not before. And so like, if you guys would, would be willing, like one, staying in the place you're in, another perhaps, come, you could stay with us for a while until your wedding. I'd love to be able to help set that up for you, but this is where we stand. We have ethics around this area, Christian ethics. And it didn't turn out well. It wasn't like everyone was like, oh, of course. That's great. And sometimes that's the cost of holding to the truth. Last point on why we choose to give what some could consider tough love to the body of Christ. Point three, we do it also for those outside the church. We do it for those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. 
Listen to these verses in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9, 10, 12, first part of 13. I know it's a, it's a lot here. Just listen. If you're following along, read along. I wrote to you, Paul says, and this is the context I was going to share with you. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate. So there's, scholars believe there's a letter before 1 Corinthians that Paul had written that never made, never made the Bible. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he's explaining himself. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Later on he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question. It's like, yeah. God will judge those outside. Guys, do you realize how, how backwards we have gotten this? Like we constantly, oftentimes, in American Christianity, we look at those outside the church, we say, they're the problem. It's them, it's their sin. It's their way of life, it's their ways of thinking. They're the real problem. Then we push our stuff and our agendas and everything else. But Paul says, are you nuts? We don't judge those outside the church. I'd rather you judge those within, those who claim Christ, those who hold to the same standard of living that you are to hold to. I thought you said judge not lest you be judged. Right, now we're gonna have to have some hard conversations. Paul's saying that these hard conversations are important because we are called to give the outside world an accurate picture of the way of Jesus. It's popularly stated, you and I might be the closest thing people read in regards to a Bible. You and I might be the closest thing that people see in regards to a Bible. And we are called to present Christ accurately. In Matthew 18, just a couple of verses after church discipline within the same context of what Jesus shared, verses 15 through 17, in church discipline. Here's what is shared in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. One of the most taken out of context passages with usually super good intentions. Right, it's like you have a prayer gathering and like three of you show up and you're like, I'm going to Matthew 18, 20 here for when two or three are gathered in my name, he's here with me. Or so you have a small group meeting, you think you're gonna have 10, two and a half show up. Let's go three. Um, and you're like, hey, two or three gather in my name. It's like, yeah, that's true. Like I'm down with that, that's true. But actually the context of that verse is in regards to church discipline. This verse is often used out of context. The context of Jesus' statement is when you choose to go through the messy, hard process of lovingly trying to restore someone who's caught up in sin, he wants you to know Jesus does, that he is with you when you're doing the hard work of being a family because that's what the household of faith is. This is what we are, we're a family, we're a unit. He's saying, Jesus is, I'm there for that. 
in a peculiar and in a powerful way. I am with you in that hardness, in that difficulty, in that conversation. I am with you in that. Man, this is incredibly hard to preach. This is a hard word. This, I gotta be honest, the temptation was, let's go on to like chapter six or seven or something, like can we, I said I wasn't doing verse by verse anyway, I mean we gotta go where we wanna go, right? And it's the Super Bowl, man, you know, there's a better verse in here, like maybe throw some Brock Purdy up there about his love for Jesus and just get us all hyped up and try to, you know. This is so important. This is important. This is so relevant to us. It is so relevant. It's relevant to every church that seeks to live missionally. Because some of, some of us are confused right now, if we just wanna be honest. We've heard statements in this church, great statements, like we're a messy, ready church. That was a big statement, like when I was just coming in to this church, like that's a big statement that was used, and I love that statement. A few weeks ago, I just mentioned, we'd rather be a church of rebellious problems than religious problems. So some of y'all are like, you're talking about both sides of your mouth, Pastor John. I thought we wanted to have these type of problems within the church. Yes, but you must understand the type of rebellious problems that we were referring to a couple weeks ago in context with what we were reading and the messy ready that we wanna be is actually us preparing to receive those who are outside of Christ, those who are investigating and wondering what is this all about because they've had people like you lovingly inviting them into this church, into the flock. You have to see what God's doing here. You, can, you gotta see what's happening here. This is something happening. God's at work here. Come and check it out. And, and there, and maybe you're someone who is in that field of investigation. There it's like, look, we don't pass judgment on those who are still discerning and investigating. We bring love, we bring truth. We share what God's word says, but this is not us saying church discipline is coming on them. They're not members. They're not professing faith in Christ yet. They're wrestling with these things still. This is for the body of Christ. This is for those who have been professing Christ for a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 40 years plus. Saying this is not how we ought to live. The missional heart of this is we don't want to warrant an unrepentant lifestyle for those who are professing believers and members of the body of Christ. And again, this is also why church membership is so important, so crucial. Don't date the church for 10 years that you're attending and never come in. Because this stuff happens actually through the process of membership, the hard process of membership conversations. Let me close with this. If you're here and you're not a believer, I want you to know, we want you to know, we do not pass judgment on you. Cannot say that clear enough. Can't emphasize it anymore. We do not pass judgment on you. But as believers at a variety of stages in our walk with Jesus, we do not 
or we do want you to know that we take sin seriously. We take it seriously. Why? Because our Savior Jesus does and did. Sin destroys people's lives. If you get to know some of our stories, you'll hear about the destruction of sin, I'm sure, in people's lives or in people's loved ones' lives. In fact, sin is so bad that Jesus had to die a bloody, tortured death on a cross to free us from the eternal penalty of it. We want you to see that your sin puts you also in grave danger. But the good news of the gospel trumps that danger. If you would receive Christ as Savior, repent, turn from your sin, and turn to him. Here's what John 3, 17 says. We often know John 3, 16, but here's what John 3, 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is the heart of the gospel. So if you're here and you're a non-believer, you're an investigator, we want you to know, man, so much of this, this wasn't for you. But we do pray you would see the heart of the church through it. And we also pray, above all, that you would receive the Savior who came not to condemn, but to save. He came to save the world through his atoning sacrifice. Let's spend some time in prayer together. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. This is why I love your word so much. Because it doesn't mince words. It doesn't sweep things under the rug. It has and is filled with topics that are hard and messy, but they're real. They're genuine. This is life. This stuff happens. And sin is destructive if left unatoned for and if left in a lifestyle of continuing in it. And so I pray for the body of Christ. I pray for those who profess faith in you that we too would take sin seriously, that we would not be people who are seeking to call specks out in everyone else's eyes and while we're dealing with religious planks in our own. No, we don't want to be that type of people. You're very clear in your word in Matthew 7. That's not how we ought to live. That's not how we ought to be. But in a way that is loving, if we see a brother or sister in open rebellion and they're in harm's way, to have a loving conversation, one-on-one, Sister with sister, brother with brother, we gotta talk. Father, may we have that type of heart. May we be that type of family. May we be that type of community. And Father, I pray for those who are, who are here, they're like, man, I'm still investigating this thing, and this thing just got wild real quick. What in the world? May they know that the destructive power of sin that we all have struggled with and all still do struggle with in some way, fashion, or form, may they know that you died for it. 
You died so we could be free from it, free from the power and the bondage of it. And may they come to receive you in faith, Jesus, and that you would make them a new creation, that the old would be gone and that the new would come and that they would walk in a repentant lifestyle because repentance is not just a one-time act. It's not one and done. It's a lifestyle that we live. We're turning from sin, we're turning to Jesus. We're turning from sin, we're turning to Jesus. So God, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. May we live boldly for you and unapologetically for you. We love you, God. We thank you. I thank you for the body of Christ. We worship you in the name of Jesus as we bring our whole selves to your altar today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you please rise?